You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hello, and welcome to the Explorers Podcast. Today, we are going to wrap up the story of Fridjof Nansen's Fromm Expedition. Let's get right to things. Last time, in June of 1896, we got Nansen and his companion, Yalmar Johansson, to the safety of Cape Flora on Northbrook Island in the southwest of Franz Josef Land. There, Nansen had run into fellow explorer Frederick Jackson, who had a camp on the southern shore. Jackson was an Englishman who had actually applied to go on the Fromm expedition, but had been rejected due to his nationality. He was in Franz Josef Land at the head of his own expedition to explore the region. Nansen was safe now, but he was stuck with Jackson and his team as their camp was iced in. They would have to wait until later in the summer for things to warm up, before Jackson's ship could arrive and take them back to Norway. But before we talk about that, I want to go back to March of 1895, where the men of the Fram watched as Nansen departed on his journey to the North Pole. With Nansen gone, command of the Fram fell to the reliable Otto Svedrup. Svedrup's orders were to continue with the scientific work being done on the Fram and prepare to take the ship out of the ice. The men were to stay with the Fram unless some sort of disaster struck. But the most important thing was to get the men safely back home. By the way, if you want to see the route of Fromm's Drift, there is a map on our website, explorerspodcast.com. Now, with Nansen gone, there was sort of a collective sigh of relief from everyone on the ship. Nansen's mercurial behavior had put people on edge, but now they could relax. Svedrup's job was to not let the men relax too much. For that, he focused on keeping the men involved and engaged. Routines would be kept, such as maintaining watch, cooking, cleaning, and scientific work. Sigrun Scott Hansen would take meteorological, magnetic, and oceanographic readings. This included measuring the ocean's depth and the thickness of the ice. Exercise was also required, with Svedrup ordering the men to ski or walk at least two hours per day. Also, the sledges were repaired and overhauled, and the ice that had been built up on the ship over the winter was chipped away. The summer of 1895 proved to be worrisome. The ship was barely moving at times, and when she did, it was often to the north. Another winter in the ice pack was now likely. Throughout the summer and into the fall of that year, the Fram slowly drifted northwest, and then in early October, the currents and winds would suddenly push the ship onward at a much faster rate. On November 15, 1895, the Fram reached 85 degrees 55 minutes north, its farthest northerly reach. This is only about 35 kilometers, or 22 miles, short of Nansen's farthest north. If the Fram had ended up beating Nansen, that would have honked the man off to no end, considering how much he had gone through, not to mention his ego. 
No matter, the ship was now north of Franz Josef Land, and she was drifting southwest. With winter coming, the ice thickened and Svedrup prepared the ship for another year in the ice. Supply depots and the lifeboats were moved to the ice, just in case Fromm would buckle under the pressure of the pack. Again, boredom was the men's greatest enemy. There were no electric lights this year, as the windmill had broken and could not be repaired. And some of the men took to drinking too much, and there were the occasional fights, but nothing major. One of the more disturbing situations that arose surrounded the ship's doctor, Henrik Blessing. Blessing would start to use morphine and become addicted to the drug. Svedrup would have to lock up the morphine, only let it be dispensed under his watchful eye. But Blessing seemed to find a way to feed his habit. The fact that one of the men had become an addict was troublesome, that he was the doctor, was equally problematic. To be honest, the men were simply becoming stir-crazy. They had spent more than two years stuck in the ice. Another half year of darkness was before them. They were sick of the situation and sick of each other. Scott Hansen would say this of the third winter in the ice, quote, It has got to the point where we can hardly stand the sight of each other, end quote. Like I said, this was a product of more than two years of living with the same men in close quarters. Thankfully, the men respected Svedrup, and he kept things in order. One major diversion was the dogs. After some puppies were born, there were now 18 on the ship. And as I said last time, who doesn't like puppies? Anyhow, the dogs would provide a welcome distraction. By the spring of 1896, the Fram had drifted further west, towards Spitsbergen. Preparations were made for a breakout from the ice. In April, the sun returned, as did some warmth. Around the ship, the flows began to break up. The men were hopeful. On May 19th, Svedrup ordered the ice in the rear of the ship hacked away to free the propeller. He would start up the engines two days later to test them out. Everything looked good. On June 3rd, the ship would find itself floating free in a pool of water. It was the first time she had done so in over two and a half years. Ten days later, the ice would open up, offering the ship a chance to move under its own power. The Fram would only go five or six hundred feet before the ice closed in again, but it was a start. Due to encroaching ice, the ship wouldn't fire up her engines again for another two weeks. The next month or so saw events unfold at an agonizingly slow pace. Channels of water would open for a few minutes, sometimes hours, but always close. Over one ten-day period, the ship managed to make only three miles of progress. The men and the dogs kept busy by hunting. Birds were now a common sight, as were polar bears. The dogs loved nothing more than to go on a polar bear hunt. But eventually, the ice pack would loosen its grip on the ship. On one day in mid-July, the Fram would make a three-mile run, the longest so far. And thus the ship zigzagged her way south and west, taking what was given to her. By early August, the ice was breaking up and was now unstable and dangerous. The ship had to be careful not to run into chunks of ice, some of it underwater. On August 3rd, the Fram would enter an area of water littered with a field of ice flows and bergs. They carefully wended their way through it. And then, two days later, August 13th, at 3.45 a.m., the ship would emerge out of the ice, just north of Spitsbergen, exactly as Nansen had predicted. The crew cheered. The cannon was fired. It was not long before the ship was under sail and moving freely through the ocean. They had done it. Later that day, the Fram would sight another vessel, this a whaler. Svedrup approached the ship and asked if word of Nansen had reached the outside world. He was troubled when he was told the answer was no. As the two ships swapped news, some of the men in the Fram wept at talking to other human beings for the first time in nearly three years. Next, Svedrup would guide Fram to Spitsbergen, reaching it on August 14th. The stay would be a short one. One side note here. In Spitsbergen, Svedrup would meet Swedish explorer-slash-engineer Solomon Andre. Andre was preparing to fly a balloon to the North Pole, a scheme that experts today say was doomed to fail. 
Anyhow, Andre would run into issues with his balloon and have to wait until the following year to attempt his flight. I mention this because people at the time were unsure if Andre's skiing would work. For Nansen, he was worried that Andre would fly off, reach the pole, and make him yesterday's news. By having to wait until 1897 to attempt his flight, it would give Nansen at least a year to exploit his achievements. Spoiler here, Andre's balloon flight was doomed to fail. He and his two companions would take off and not be heard from again, until their bodies were found on the remote island of Caviteo in northeast Svalbard. From the journals found with the bodies, their balloon had stayed afloat for just over two days before crash landing on the ice. The men had died after making their way to the island. Anyhow, that is another story for this podcast. Side note done. The farm would thus depart for Norway. The plan was to get supplies, send out messages, and then head for Franz Josef Land to look for Nansen. And that is my cue to head back to Nansen, who was stuck on Northbrook Island in Franz Josef Land at Frederick Jackson's camp. Once Nansen and Johansen were settled, they simply had to wait for the ice to clear up around Jackson's camp for a ship to arrive. The ship would bring supplies to Jackson, who was spending another year in the area, and then return to Norway. Nansen fell ill for a while once at Jackson's camp, likely a collapse from the mental and physical fatigue of the past three years. But it was nothing serious, and he would soon be preparing for his journey home. For this, he would prepare telegrams and letters, and organize the notes for the book that he would write. In his free time, he explored the area and spoke often with Jackson. The two men got along well. They were, in a lot of ways, cut from the same cloth. They both had an aura of superiority to them, which made those who worked for them dislike them. Thankfully, Nansen did not need to prove himself to Jackson, so he didn't have to put on the Mr. Know-it-all hat that he wore for so many others. Instead, they just enjoyed each other's company. Regarding the two men's relationship, each would have one area of concern. Jackson would be a little perturbed that he would forever be just the guy who found Nansen. He would, however, handle the situation without any bitterness. As for Nansen, he didn't want anyone to think he needed to be rescued. He even made comments that he could have gotten to Spitsbergen faster if he and Johansen had not encountered the Englishman. That was sort of silly, as a voyage to Spitsbergen would have been wildly risky. In the end, the narrative that emerged was that Nansen had not really needed any help, but he had been happy to accept aid from Jackson since the opportunity arose. Anyhow, a few notes about this time. Nansen, who had mapped many of the islands to the north, would name some of them. In honor of Jackson, he would dub the island where he and Johansen had spent the past winter, Frederick Jackson Island. Another item. Remember how Nansen had forgotten to wind his watch and it had stopped running? Nansen had been forced to guess how long it had been stopped. Well, it was determined that he had only been off by 26 minutes, thus his longitudinal calculations had been pretty accurate. Another note. Amongst the team of Englishmen was Reginald Ketzlick, a geologist and doctor. Ketzlick would go on to serve on Robert Falcon Scott's discovery expedition. Next, regarding Yalmar Johansen. Despite not speaking English, he fell in easily with the rest of Jackson's team. Johansen would take the time to learn English, which allowed him, and the others on the island, to gossip about their bosses. So, on July 26th, Jackson's supply vessel, the Windward, would arrive at the base, the ice now open. The crew would cheer Nansen when introduced. When Nansen asked about Fromm, he was told she had not returned, which greatly disturbed him. The Windward would depart on August 7th, Nansen and Johansen eager to be home after three years. The Windward would reach Vardo, Norway on August 13th, 1896. Nansen's first visit was to the telegraph office. There he would trumpet his accomplishments to the world. Also to his wife he wrote, quote, Here you have your boy at last. All well. Expedition successful as expected. End quote. As you can see, Nansen was glossing over the elephant in the room, and that was that he had not reached the North Pole. But to be honest, he didn't need to worry about what others were thinking. 
As we have said, Nansen had accomplished a lot if Farthest North record the Plum Prize. Still, Nansen would try and downplay the fact that he had not reached the pole. In a letter to Otto Imringer of the Danish Geographical Society, he said that he was happy with the results of the expedition, but he acknowledged that there had been issues. He said that he regretted not getting the second batch of dogs from the Siberian coast, and if he had done so, he might have reached the pole. Now, by coincidence, Henrik Mohn, the man behind the transpolar drift theory, was in Vardo for a short visit at the time of Nansen's arrival. The two men were ecstatic to see each other and shared a bottle of champagne. Mohn must have been thrilled to have had his theory proven correct. Next, Nansen would arrange to take a mail steamer down the Norwegian coast to the port of Hammerfest, right at the tip of Norway on the Arctic Sea. There he arranged to meet with his wife, Eva. Nansen would arrive at Hammerfest on August 18th. There, the locals had the first of many receptions waiting for Nansen and Johansen. They were true Norwegian heroes. Eva would arrive later that evening. For Nansen and Eva, it was a happy reunion. The issues that might have plagued them were sidelined for now. By the way, Eva had endured a tough three years, not knowing if her husband would ever return. And there had been several incidents, one an April Fool's joke, where supposed messages had been found or received saying Nansen had reached the pole. They had all been false, so that the couple was now reunited was an amazing moment. Two days later, Nansen would get a much-welcome telegram. Fromm had reached the port of Sharver, only about 70 miles west of Hammerfest. Nansen was thrilled and relieved to find that the ship and her crew were safe. The same was said for Sverdrup and the crew of the Fram. That Nansen had returned meant their mission was almost done. They wouldn't have to go searching for Nansen and Johansen in Franz Josef land. Fromm would head west to the port of Tromsø, Nansen on her heels. The next day, there would be a joyous reunion, a celebration that would last for days. After that, it was down the Norwegian coast, parties and celebrations at every stop. That Nansen had not reached the pole was not a big deal to these people. He had made a great step forward in the process, and he had returned home after many thought he would never come back alive. The Fram would sail into Christiania on September 9, 1896, escorted by naval warships and hundreds of boats of all sizes. It was reputedly the biggest gathering in the city's history. From there, it was on to the Royal Palace, where Nansen and his team were received by King Oscar. It was an elaborate celebration, people cheering them all along the route. When going into the palace, the men passed through an arch made up of more than 200 gymnasts. At the palace, Nansen was met by his daughter, Liv, the first time he had seen her since she was an infant three years earlier. And so Nansen mania swept up Norway and the world. All around the globe, newspapers hailed the accomplishments of the Nordic hero. The public ate up the daring tale. It didn't hurt that Nansen was a tall, handsome Viking, the image of a hero in the minds of many eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED lights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply.
Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. In the immediate aftermath of the Fromm expedition, Nansen would become a very in-demand guy. He would begin writing a chronicle of the expedition and prepare for the inevitable return to the lecture circuit. As for Nansen's crew, they would technically be done, but he would fight to have them all paid an extra year's salary, a way to recognize what they had done and the sacrifice their families had made. One thing I want to mention regarding Nansen and the crew, he was very loyal to them. Over the years, he would help various members get jobs and even loan them money when needed. And the animosity that existed between him and the men faded over time, at least for some. Now that they were home, they remembered the good times, the things they had accomplished. One of the ship's officers, Sigurd Scott Hansen, would later write this, quote, there was a time when I hated Nansen to such an extent that I almost dare not think of it, but now the feeling has faded to a memory, vague as a fog, of a dark period, and has given way to an ordinary, polite sympathy which makes me concentrate on the good aspects. End quote. We will talk about some of the key crew members before we finish today. Now, for Nansen, the big thing he wanted to do was take financial advantage of his expedition. In addition to a book and lectures, he would sell the rights to the story to various newspapers. The Daily Chronicle in London paid him £2,250 for his story. Regarding the book, his Norwegian publisher gave him an 88,000 krona advance. That was astronomical. It's like 10 times what the Greenland expedition cost, and 25 or 30 times the annual salary he got from Christiania University. His English publisher would give him another £10,000. The book, by the way, would be a two-volume set titled Farthest North. It would be a huge success with the public and the critics, the first printing of 40,000 copies would sell out. The book's success would essentially set up Nansen financially for life. And one other thing. Nansen vowed to his wife, friends, and the public to never do such a crazy expedition again. He was now 36 years old, had a family, and that sort of thing was behind him. At least, that is what he said. Anyhow, that is the immediate aftermath of the Fromm expedition. Now I want to focus on the legacy of the endeavor. The first thing I want to talk about regarding Nansen and the Fromm expedition are the failures and issues that arose. We can start with the obvious item, no North Pole. I mean, that had been the goal. But I'm not going to lie to you. While it was disappointing that Nansen had not reached the pole, it wasn't a deal-breaker. Nansen downplayed it, and so did the press and the public. I think a big reason was the totality of the story. Remember, a lot of people thought Nansen was crazy. And when he came back after three years, it was a huge surprise. A pleasant surprise, but still a surprise. And then when people read about all that the ship and Nansen had accomplished, the near-death experiences, the things they had overcome, it was just a great story. Surviving such a thing makes for great drama, and people loved it. It didn't hurt that Nansen looked good on the front page of a newspaper. The second item I want to mention is a piece of criticism that was leveled at Nansen from various quarters, and that was his decision to head to Franz Josef Land on his retreat from his farthest north location. I want to remind you that Nansen's push to the North Pole lasted just over three weeks, he had budgeted 50 days for the journey. Some felt that he should have tried to go back to Fromm. He was the leader, after all. It was his job to stay with the ship. Nansen was sensitive to accusations he had abandoned his team. People said that he had taken the easy way out by heading for Franz Josef Land. Personally, I can see both points of view. 
However, the big issue I have is that if Nansen had tried to return to Fram, he didn't know exactly where the ship was. Remember, we're on drifting ice. That makes finding the ship a bit dicey. Now, perhaps it wouldn't have been that hard, but it seems like an obvious flaw in the idea of trying to return to Fram. No matter why I understand the argument, I can certainly see and agree with Nansen's ultimate decision. And with that, let's talk about the positives of the Fram expedition, which were many. First and foremost, Nansen and Johansen had achieved a new farthest north record, 86 degrees and 13 minutes north. They had bested Adolphus Greeley by nearly 200 miles, or 320 kilometers. That was a big leap. The record would stand for five years. Next, with regards to polar travel, Nansen had demonstrated that dogs and skis were the most promising way to conduct travel over the ice. Nansen set the template for such expeditions. Use small, skilled teams, traveling light and fast. He had gear and supplies designed for the specific needs of the team. Over the next 15 years, the North and South Poles would be achieved in this exact fashion. Now, regarding scientific and geographic discoveries, the Fromm expedition had come back loaded with information. The Fromm had gone farther north than any ship in history, and the crew had been taking meteorological, oceanographic, and magnetic readings for three years. That was a boon to science. They found that the Arctic Ocean was far deeper than anyone realized, and because of this depth, it proved that there was no great landmass at the North Pole. Also, the voyage proved the transpolar drift theory was correct. And regarding discoveries, Nansen had mapped all sorts of islands in Franz Josef Land, and he had helped prove it was an archipelago. And we can't forget that the Fram had sailed along the Siberian coast, discovering and mapping all sorts of islands and coastline. It opened the world's eyes to places we knew very little or nothing about. And another thing, Nansen had done it all without losing a single life. That's admirable. The attention to planning and outfitting the expedition was outstanding. This includes the design of the ship, which was revolutionary. The thought put into all the preparations allowed the expedition to succeed. Now, two final items I want to mention with regards to the legacy of the expedition. First, the success of the Fram expedition was a great boost to Norwegian pride. As we noted, Norway was the junior partner in a union with Sweden. Well, the emergence of men like Nansen and his deeds would help fuel Norwegian pride and nationalism. And in less than a decade, Norway would be an independent nation. Nansen will play a role in the creation of what is the modern Norwegian state, but we will talk about that next time. And the second item is that Nansen's Fram expedition would be one of the biggest sparks in the push for exploration of the polar regions. The heroic age of Antarctic exploration would get started in 1897. Men and nations began to make plans to conquer both poles. Nansen's tactics would inspire many, including a young Norwegian named Roald Amundsen, the man who would be the first to reach the South Pole, as well as the first person to sail the entire Northwest Passage. These would be the glory days of polar exploration, and Norway was at the forefront. All of this will make Nansen a leading figure in polar exploration, and over the next couple of decades, most men seeking to head into the ice will turn to him for advice. Too bad they didn't always listen. So that wraps up the legacy section of the Fram expedition. Now, before we finish, I do want to mention a few of the men on the expedition, because we have spent a lot of time with them. Here we go. The first person I'll talk about is Otto Svedrup, Nansen's solid and dependable second-in-command for two expeditions. I didn't read any books on Svedrup, but I liked the guy. He was adaptable and smart and proved to be a quality leader. He was not the most dynamic man, but he was trustworthy and respected by the crew. That was very important. In the aftermath of the Fromm expedition, Svedrup would go on another expedition, with Fromm as well. In 1898, he would head to the Canadian Arctic and spend four years exploring and mapping. He would adopt Inuit ways and overwinter in the Arctic for four straight years. 
he and his team would chart a total of 260,000 square kilometers of the area, more than any other polar expedition. Sverdrup would return to Norway as a national hero, but remain mostly unknown throughout the rest of the world. There would be more expeditions for the man. In 1914-15, he would go to the Kara Sea along the Siberian coast in search of two lost expeditions. A final voyage took place in 1921, with Sverdrup leading five ships into the waters off the Siberian coast in order to expand northern sea routes. After that, he would retire. He died in 1930 at the age of 76. Today, you can find a couple of statues of the guy in Norway, and in 2008, the Norwegian Navy launched the Otto Sverdrup and Nansen-class frigate. In Sverdrup's life, he received numerous honors, including awards from the Royal Geographical Society and the Norwegian Geographical Society. He also received the Grand Cross of the Norwegian Order of St. Olaf. Also, as I mentioned in the last episode, there is Sverdrup Island in the Kara Sea. In addition, in Nunavut, Canada, there is a collection of islands that are called the Sverdrup Islands and honor the man who had mapped them. As I said, I like Sverdrup, and I knew nothing about him before coming into this series. I hope to someday give him his own series. The second person I want to mention is Nansen's sledge partner, Yalmar Johansen. To be honest, Johansen's life story ended up sad. He would suffer from depression, which contributed to a drinking problem. After the Fram expedition, Johansen sort of slid into the background. He was not, by any means, an extrovert, and he was forgotten while Nansen was showered with honors and praise. This stung Johansen, who was frustrated by a lack of acknowledgement of what he had done for the expedition. And let's be clear, he had been essential in the push for the pole. Nansen may not have survived with a lesser partner. After the expedition, Johansen would join the army and rise to the rank of captain. However, he struggled to settle into military and married life. His heavy drinking would ultimately cost him his career and his family. Over the years, Johansen would turn to Nansen for help. Often this was for money, but it was also for work. And in 1910, Nansen would get Johansen a position with Roald Amundsen's South Pole Expedition. It was a great opportunity. However, things did not go well. Johansen would save another man's life during a blizzard, but he would clash with Amundsen over the incident because he felt that Amundsen had put the lives of his men in jeopardy. It would ultimately lead to his dismissal from the team. Upon his return home, Johansen's drinking and depression would spiral out of control. He would commit suicide in 1913 at the age of 45. Johansen was, sadly, forgotten by most people. But as I said, he had been immensely important to the success of the Fram expedition. In 1997, a biography of Johansen was released, and it sort of rescued him from obscurity, and it has given him his rightful place in the annals of polar exploration. The next person on our list is Sigurd Scott Hansen, one of the ship's officers. Scott Hansen would return to the Navy after the expedition and remain in active service until 1931. When an effort was started to preserve the Fram, Scott Hansen would aid in the interior restoration of the ship. Scott Hansen would die in 1939. Three small islands on the Kara Sea off the Siberian coast are named after him. They are very cleverly named the Scott Hansen Islands. The last person I want to mention is Frederick Jackson, the gentleman explorer who'd encountered Nansen in 1896. Jackson's work would prove that Franz Josef Land was an archipelago. This would get Jackson a knighthood, and he would write a book about his experience. After that, Jackson would be done with polar exploration. He would join the army and rise to the rank of major in World War I. Later, he would travel across the Australian deserts. He died in 1938 at the age of 78. Despite all the work he did mapping Franz Josef Land, he is best remembered as the man who found Fridjof Nansen. As I mentioned earlier, the island that Nansen and Johansen wintered on in 1895-96 was dubbed Frederick Jackson Island by Nansen in honor of Jackson's role in the Fram expedition. 
And so that is a wrap-up of the people of our story, but there is one final thing to talk about, and that is the Fromm. The Fromm is a unique character. Her innovative design would prove to be critical to the success of Nansen's expedition. After her epic polar drift, Fromm would go on multiple polar expeditions over the next 15 years. This included Svedrup's years-long stay in the Canadian Arctic and Amundsen's South Pole expedition. The ship would go into storage in 1912 and fall into decay, and then in the late 1920s an effort was started to preserve the historic vessel. Otto Svedrup was one of the men who helped get the preservation efforts going. In 1935, the Fromm Museum would open, the centerpiece being a historic vessel. I have, sadly, never been to the museum, but people say it's amazing. Ross, who edits the Explorers podcast, has actually been there, and he attests how awesome this place is. You can even go check out the website, where there are tons of photos and videos where you can go through the ship. I put a link to the museum in the show notes, as well as on our website. And so, that wraps up part six in our story on Norwegian explorer Fridjof Nansen. This is the final chapter in the Epic From Expedition. However, we are not done with Nansen. There will be one more episode about the man. He is done with big expeditions, although he will toy with a South Pole endeavor. But beyond that, he will be very important in the world of polar exploration. Over the next couple of decades, Scott, Shackleton, Amundsen, and others would turn to him for advice and guidance. Wikipedia dubbed him a polar oracle. So we'll cover that, plus his extensive scientific work, which will shift primarily to oceanography. And we will touch on Nansen's personal life, plus his time as a diplomat and politician. And we won't forget his humanitarian efforts, which will net him a Nobel Peace Prize. So that is it. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Please take care. I will see you next time. The Explorers podcast is part of the Airwave Media Network. Go to airwavemedia.com to find other first-rate independent podcasts, including Fork in the Road and Good Job Brain. I'm Victoria Cash. Thanks for calling the Lucky Land Hotline. If you feel like you do the same thing every day, press 1. If you're ready to have some serious fun for the chance to redeem some serious prizes, press 2. We heard you loud and clear. So go to LuckyLandslots.com right now and play over 100 social casino-style games for free. Get lucky today at LuckyLandslots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts.